Hey, sustainable fashion supporter. Welcome to Recloseted Radio, a podcast dedicated to fashion sustainability and equipping you with the knowledge to do better in the world. I'm your host, Selena Ho, and I promise to support you on this journey to right the harmful fashion industry. You ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back. In today's episode, I am joined by a special guest, and her name is Essie Chili. She is a bioplastics researcher and consultant, and also has a PhD in chemistry from the University of British Columbia. UBC is actually my alma mater, so super cool that she had a PhD from UBC. She actually specialized in polymer chemistry during her degree. And for those of you that have no idea what polymers were, totally fine. I also was equally as clueless, and Essie does a really good job explaining it all in today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned. We talk a lot about the plastics problems, what consumers can do, what businesses can do, and also what this whole plastic industry is looking like and some innovation in the space. So make sure you stay tuned. Welcome to the podcast, Essie. Thank you so much for having me. To kick us off, Can you overview your journey and tell us how you got into bioplastics and why you ended up doing a PhD in polymer chemistry? Yeah, for sure. So I'm from New Zealand. When I was a kid, I was really saddened to see all the plastic that was in our ocean floating around in that big uh, plastic island. And yes, I was always really interested in science. And then I came to Vancouver to do my PhD. I just wanted to do it in something to do with sustainability. And I met my PhD research advisor. And she said that she had this great project um, in polymers and plastics. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And that's kind of how I um, serendipitously ended up in this space. Super cool that you're from New Zealand. Speaking of polymers, for those of us that aren't as educated as you are, can you explain to us what polymers are? Of course. Something I like to say is that all plastics are polymers, but not all polymers are plastics. Polymers are just really long chain molecules, which make up a lot of different things like resins, oils, uh, rubbers, and also plastics. Plastics are one subsection of that broader category. And the work I did, I was mostly focused on polymers. And so whatever properties those materials had, I was interested. Now that you have graduated, congratulations, by the way, can you tell us a little bit more about your work as a bioplastic researcher and consultant? Yeah, for sure. So I spent my whole PhD doing um, making plastics. And then when I left and came into the real world, I worked as a barista for about eight months or so. And I just saw the sheer volume of plastics and waste that passes through one cafe every day. I became really interested in biodegradable plastics. And so, you know, instead of making them, I wanted to see how we could break them down a bit better. So now most of my work is focused on um, compostable plastics, biodegradable plastics, and trying to convert plastics into some sort of agricultural or soil amendment. Wow, that's amazing work that you do. I really commend you for doing what you do, and we definitely need more people like that in the world. And so bringing it back a little bit, though, how did plastics originate? I assume there must have been some sort of use for it back in the day, so hoping that you can walk us through that. For sure, totally. Plastics and polymers 
do occur naturally in nature. So you can think of the rubber in rubber trees. Um, that's a naturally occurring polymer and it's just really rubbery. It has that rubbery elastic type properties. And then also polymers um, come from like sheep's wool as a polymer. And so it's a, a form of like plastic type material. Same with cotton and also um, there was one more, but I forgot what it was. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, these are all naturally occurring, uh, occurring polymers. And so what really happened is that we wanted more durability in some of these materials. And so scientists went into their science lab and they decided to start creating more synthetic polymers, which would be more long lasting and more flexible and have all these great properties. So the first plastics I think were created were polystyrene. That was created in 1870. It wasn't used for too much, um, and then after that came polylactic acid, actually, from Dow Chemicals. But they realized that that material wasn't really that useful, so they threw it out. And then came along the people who invented polyethylene. So a really um, versatile and like, amazing invention, really, in the end. They took one uh, molecule of ethylene, which is just two carbon units, and then they made it into a million carbon units. And really, you can start to make polyethylene really, really cheaply these days. So that was kind of the first plastics that were made. But it wasn't really until the 50s and 60s after the Second World War that plastics really exploded in our society and our culture. After that, everyone was really excited. People were wanting to have lots of free time. And so people wanted more convenience and they needed something which is lightweight, durable, you know, um, things like packaged dinners came in a plastic wrap as well. So it was really after the, the Great War or the Second World War that a lot of these materials started hitting the, um, at least the North American and European market. Wow, thank you for walking us through that journey. And throughout this plastics evolution, where do you think we went wrong? You know, is it when we started making disposable things like those plastic dinners that you were talking about? Or is there another time that you can think of? A lot of the problems are in the disposal plastics that we use for packaging these days. Those are the materials that are getting out into the environment and polluting our oceans and our soils. But really, scientists were talking about the problem with plastic persistence and pollution, like plastic stay on our earth for a thousand years. I'm pretty sure everyone in their like, primary school classes would have heard about that, how plastics are bad and we have to recycle them because they stay on the earth forever and ever. And people have known about this since the 1970s and um, companies and corporations and whoever's been making these materials have known these problems for such a long time. So I really think the fact is that we've just been ignoring what's been pretty blatant in, in front of us. And people haven't been doing enough to really maintain the value of plastics or try to recycle it or collect it in any real way. Wow, it blows my mind that people knew about the potentially long-lasting harmful impacts behind plastics, but still kept going at it. That being said, though, I feel like there are some useful applications of plastics, and we do encounter it every day in our day-to-day lives, so I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what those positives and benefits might be, and examples of how we use plastics in our everyday lives. Yeah, for sure. I have so many examples. So (laughs) Plastics are usually used for their durability, so they're really long-lasting, and also they have really good barrier properties. So if that means that water and oxygen and different gases can't pass through, the, um, through plastics very well. And they're also used as insulators, so electricity can't pass through them either. 
So I'll just take you on like the different time length scales of some of the materials that are used these days. So we have the single use items. So things are just used for less than a day or just used one time. So that's your plastic straws, your plastic cups, cutlery and packaging, I guess, would be technically one of those as well. Then you have your short term use application. So that's things which are used in, uh, in less than a month, for example. So that's something like, you know, a shampoo bottle. You use it a few times and then you throw it away. So that's often packaging as well. And then you can get to kind of medium term plastics, things that are used for less than a year, for example, like a toothbrush, um, a shower curtain, a pair of shoes, for example, or um, some polyester clothing. And then you can get to longer term applications, which are like things like your outdoor furniture or any furniture really is made out of plastic in the end. And then you also have your high-tech and more engineering type plastics. Uh, so that's the plastics that you use for your cell phone, for your computer, for a jet, um, jet plane, for example. And also things which are used in medicine. So syringes, catheters, and joints for your knees. Blood bags is a big one as well. So you can, you can imagine what the world would be like without a blood bag, a blood donation. And then there's the plastics used in science as well. Especially in biology and medical science, you have test tubes and all these different things that people use on a day-to-day -day basis. And so plastics have really like wrapped our world and everything we do here, we use plastics. So it's a very difficult conversation when we're trying to reduce the amount of plastics that we use. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to think about plastics in the short, medium, and long term. So thank you for that overview. Speaking of medicine and science, though, do you think there is a place for plastics in those industries? Yeah, I definitely think there are places where plastics, like the material itself, which is lightweight, um, and you can sterilize it relatively easily, and it, like glass breaks really easily, and so you don't really want that to be happening. There's definitely places where plastics are important, but the problem with the plastics, the plastic pollution that we see at the moment, and that there's so many places where you don't need a super, super durile, long-lasting material um, for that application. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for you to have a straw, use it once but the straw itself stays on the earth for a thousand years like that just doesn't make any sense and so it really it means rethinking a lot of the materials that we use and rethinking a lot of the products that we have a lot of this is, comes down to convenience and so it's really just trying to change the way that we interact with a lot of the things that we we use on a day-to-day -day basis Yes, like you were talking about, I definitely do think there is a time and place for plastics. So thank you for giving us that overview. And if we go back to the basics a little bit, can you explain to us high level how plastics are made? And keep in mind, not everyone has a PhD in chemistry like you do. So if we could explain it in layman's terms, that would be awesome. So there's so many different types of plastic and many of them are made uh, in a similar process but with different like chemicals and reagents. But generally what happens on an industrial scale is that you start off with your monomers, those are your building blocks, and then you also have a catalyst. So that's something which makes those building blocks come together to form the long, long polymer chains and they make it do it fast and at a relatively low temperature. So what they do is in a big vat, they have, <clears throat> they have their starting materials, their monomers, and they add a sprinkle of the magic catalyst dust, and then they pretty much just heat it up and churn it and allow the polymer to grow itself, and so those building blocks to come together. And then at the end of that process, they'll probably do something um, to clean it up, to distill off any partially reacted materials, and just to make sure that you have like you know a clean polymer. 
Then they palletize it, they cool it down from the mouth, they would palletize it to make it into those small pieces and then just, that's pretty much how you make the polymer or the plastic. From there it would go to somebody who would make a product out of it and they would like extrude it or they would blow mold it or some, some sort of technique to make whatever product is they, they need and then that's pretty much how it works. Wow, thank you. That was super informative and easy to follow along, which is great. Earlier in the episode, you did mention biodegradable and compostable plastics. So I wanted to ask you about innovations in the plastic space, you know, beyond biodegradable or compostable plastics. Is there anything that you're super excited about? Yeah, for sure. Compostables and biodegradables are really interesting. I mean, I definitely don't think they're, they're at the place that they need to be at the moment because many of them don't break down <clears throat> within the compost conditions that you often find. So there does need to be a little bit of work on those materials. There's some really interesting new innovations coming out at the really early stage where they're trying to make building blocks which are chemically, you can bring them together to make the chains, but then you can also take them apart so you can recycle them infinitely, technically, or theoretically at least, which would be really cool. And then there are just so many other things, like there's not just the materials themselves, but there's things like 3D printing and new ways of making materials that are really interesting. Instead of doing something where you take a lot of plastic and you shoot it through an extruder and then you injection mold that to make some sort of thick material, you could 3D print something which is really lightweight and only has uses the material that you really need to make that product as durable as it needs to be, but minimizing the material, which makes it cheaper and also easier to degrade because there's not as much that you have to get rid of in the end. There's a lot of interesting things like that and then being made out of biological sources so like agricultural waste and food waste there's a really interesting company uh, in ontario who has genetically modified some bacteria or microorganisms to take municipal food waste and turn that into a type of plastic which i think is really fancy lots of really interesting technologies happening like that uh, it's really needed these days as well so excited about it yeah, the 3D printing technology is so amazing to see. And honestly, if that continues the way it does, I think there's a lot of hope. I also didn't know about the food waste company in Toronto that makes plastics. So super cool. Thank you for sharing. I will definitely look into it. Also, for people that don't know, can you explain what compostable and biodegradable plastics are and how they work? Biodegradable is kind of a hard word these days. Everyone's been talking about their biodegradable plastics, but there's been so many studies coming out saying that, oh, this doesn't actually biodegrade. And so technically everything biodegrades. Um, it just depends on the time scale that we're talking about. A peach would degrade, the, the peach flesh would degrade quite quickly, but then the peach nut or the uh, seed takes a longer time to degrade. So it's really about, you know, what is, you have to attach that definition to something. And that's where compostability comes in. So now we're saying this material degrades, biodegrades within a compost environment. So that's high temperature, high humidity. But then the problem is with many of the compostable plastics that we have today, the time frame that it takes that they're certified to degrade in doesn't really match with a lot of the compost facilities that we have operating. So there's this mismatch in the timing, which means that they don't degrade at the time scale that they need to, which is kind of the problem. But biodegradable and um, compostable plastics are made out of biological plant sources often, not always. Um, and yeah, but they're just, they're, they are designed to 
be broken down by the environment. Uh, but does you, I just would caution people to be careful when, when reading the word biodegradable, um, just to make sure that you're checking exactly what those conditions are that that material will biodegrade in. Yeah, and in terms of compostable plastics, I know this because we chatted about this before. Can you tell the listeners what conditions are required for compostable plastics to truly compost and break down, and also what the time frame looks like? Many people may have home compost at home, and you know that unless you're being really diligent, you kind of just put your food waste out there and you leave it, and then hopefully a year or so later you've got some nice mature compost. Um, so what happens on a larger scale in our cities and in different municipalities is that they do industrial composting. So they take a lot of food waste in and they put it uh, they put it in different like different technologies sometimes they put it in long long rows called wood rows and sometimes they put them in big piles that they use tractors to kind of turn and aerate those processes can can operate between 2 weeks and 3 months generally after that time period you have a really nice mature compost uh, that you can then put on your soil However, bioplastics, they generally take 180 days, which is about six months to biodegrade. And so it's almost twice as long as many of the uh, compost operators that are operating compost uh, facilities. And so there we have that kind of time discrepancy between the two. So in my mind, I'm just picturing these half composted plastics that are just being, you know, half composted and then thrown out. Is that kind of what's happening? Pretty much. Actually, at the moment, uh, if there's any plastic in the food waste, the composters usually just screen it out and send that straight to the landfill. And then if there's any compost left over, I mean, any plastic left over in the compost after the process, they screen that out also and send it to the landfill. And so one of the biggest problems with compostables is that you can't tell, like you can't visually tell the difference between a compostable plastic and a conventional plastic. And so it's much, it's too expensive and difficult for compost operators to go through the process of trying to separate the two. Often it just generally ends up in the landfill, which is quite disappointing, to be honest. Wow, that is so heartbreaking to hear. But thank you so much for sharing. And I think that more people need to be aware about this. So we definitely need to talk about it. That being said, though, I feel like compostable and biodegradable plastics are marketed to us as better alternatives. But it turns out that it, you know, it kind of isn't. I was going to ask you this later, but I do think that some listeners might be wondering at this point in the episode, but for everyday consumers, how can we do our part then in the plastics problem? That is a great question, and it's actually a really difficult place to be in. Ideally, the people who are putting products on the market are really doing the work to make sure that they, there are places that you can actually compost these products. If possible, I would talk to your municipal compost operator and really start to see exactly what products they're willing to take and which ones they're not. I think if the municipal government or the city or whomever, if they know that there is a huge push by consumers to start to switch over to compostables, and they'll make more of an effort to ensure that there are people who will convert those materials locally. Keep your eye out and make sure that you're aware of the changing situations. But for the moment, I would just then focus on recyclable plastics and using recyclable things rather than compostable. Just in the short term, until there's enough 
movement uh, for the infrastructure to actually convert these compostable products. Yeah, thank you for that overview. As you know, Recloseted is dedicated to fashion sustainability, and unfortunately, there is a lot of plastics, and there is a bit of a plastics problem in the fashion and clothing space as well. You know, we think about polyester and acrylics and what happens when we wash it. So hoping that you can walk us through some of the implications and problems with plastics in our clothing. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, um, we have our natural polymers like cotton and wool and silk, all of those made from different uh, plant and animal sources. But the reason we moved to things like polyesters is because it was often expensive and potentially environmentally damaging to make some of these other materials. But now we've kind of reached the same point with the um, synthetic materials, which is a bit tricky as well. Really, it's just, it's kind of, it's interesting, but human beings are really good at hindsight. It's always 2020. <laughs> I'm not sure if people realized how, mu- how many microfibers would be coming off our materials when we washed them. It just yeah. was completely outside of our range of understanding. But now that there have, it has been noticed, I'm really excited to see so many people in the sustainable fashion industry actively working to make new materials and design them in new ways that those, those fibers aren't being released. Of all the people who have found out about a problem in their industry and like the time it took them for act- to actually like really try to make a difference is really short compared to other people. So I really do commend you and your listeners. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of change happening in the fashion space, which is amazing to see. I've talked about microplastics and microfibers before on Recloseted's blog and Instagram. Just in case people don't know, can you explain what that is? Yeah, for sure. So microplastics and also microfibers, they're both really small pieces of plastic. Our polyesters, they're made up of long polymer chains. So just long, long fibers that are woven to make clothes, but those fibers often break and they break into small pieces that you can't really see. That's pretty much what microfibers are. They come out every time um, you wash your clothes and also just through wear and tear of clothing as well. Microplastics, on the other hand, are more just like particles, pieces. They form when plastics are degraded in the environment, especially in the ocean. So UV light from the sun chemically starts to degrade the plastic and it just breaks up into smaller, smaller and smaller pieces. Those pieces aren't eaten by microorganisms or anything. They're mostly just eaten by fish and small animals. Unfortunately, these microplastics make their way up the food chain. Yeah, and what Essie means by it makes its way up the food chain is literally these little bits of plastic, fish, or you know whatever seafood will eat them. And then when we eat the seafood, we in turn also ingest the plastic. So it's a super vicious cycle and definitely something we need to take control of. I did do a microplastics post on our blog, so I'll link it in the show notes. But high level, if you want to be part of the semi-solution or band-aid solution, you can get a guppy friend bag, and I will link that in the show notes as well. But that's just a bag where you put all of your polyester and acrylics and other synthetic clothes that release these microfibers, and so that at least it's controlled, and then you can pick up the plastic parts after. And beyond microfibers and microplastics, another area of concern that I've seen, at least in the fashion space, is this increase in popularity of clothing that are made from quote-unquote recycled plastic water bottles. 
Basically, these plastic water bottles are taken, broken down, spun into fibers, and then these fibers are used to stitch clothing, which in theory sounds great because, you know, we're taking our plastic water bottles and finding another use for them. But that being said, I've heard horrible things about end of life. If you decide that you don't want your sweater that was made from plastic water bottles, there's nothing that can be done at the end of life to break down those fibers and reuse it again. So I'm hoping you can enlighten us on this situation and tell us what your thoughts are. Sure, like I very much agree. I think it's great that people are finding in uses for plastics um, in clothing, but then that's only one cycle of recycling, right? You're still just going from one bottle to um, a piece of clothing, and then what does that happen to that clothing afterwards? You're not really closing the loop, for example. Um, so really what you want is to be able to take that, that piece of clothing and then be able to recycle that into more clothing or into something else entirely. We're definitely making steps towards where we want to be and people are going to market themselves based on those really small steps along the pathway. But we just need to continue to ask more of the people who make our products. Uh, say, yeah, that was great. It was great that you did that, but what can we do with the product afterwards? Like, how can, will you collect it and try to recycle it for us? What's the next step to actually get to true sustainability or true closed loop um, mm -hmm. products, which is important? Yes, totally. I love what you said about trying to make it a closed loop system. I think that is so important. Can you tell us if plastic can be recycled? And more specifically, I think a lot of us will throw our plastic water bottles into the recycling bin thinking that, I don't know, maybe it's going to be spun back into new plastic water bottles. And I don't think that's the case. So if you can shed some light on plastics and recycling, that would be great. Theoretically, technically, all plastics that are on the market, that's not true. Theoretically, <laughs> most plastics that are on the market can be recycled. The real question is, are they getting recycled? Mm -hmm. And so up to this point, this time last year, actually, everyone was putting their bottles and cans into these big recycling bins. But what was really happening was that we here in Canada were shipping our recycling to China or to other Southeast Asian countries. We weren't actually doing the processing and the recycling here. Instead, it was somehow cheaper for us to sh put it in a container and ship it across an ocean for somebody else to do it. The other problem was, though, that we weren't doing a very good job of cleaning these products, like cleaning the plastic or cleaning the aluminum or whatever. So we were shipping over there really dirty trash in the end, and we were expecting these people to clean up our mess. This time last year, uh, the Chinese government said no, and very quickly, uh, the other Southeast Asian governments also said no. And so now we have landfills filling up at an alarming rate because we don't have enough recycling capability here in Canada and also in North America as a whole. It's been very difficult. I think people are losing money. The global recycling economy has taken a large hit. But I think it's a great opportunity for us to start to think about local solutions to these problems that we have. And it's really about, it's time for us to take responsibility for these materials mm -hmm. and also to find ways to generate more value from our waste. Because in the end, it's not really waste. These products can be recycled, they should be recycled, and we should be using them to make new products instead of taking more things out of our environment and out of our earth to make those same materials. 
Yeah, and it's so heartbreaking to hear what those other countries had to deal with just because of our problems out in the West. So it's great that we're talking about it. In talking about it, though, there are so many different problems that come up, but I'm wondering if you can pick one to two things that really bothers you and maybe keeps you up at night about the plastics issues. Well, for me, honestly, it's just the the sheer number of competing interests in this space. Like some people have interests in like the oil and gas industry and petroleum, which people use to make plastics. And then other people have interests in the plastics themselves and selling those plastics for different products. And then people have interests in the recycling as well. And so who are the people who are actually getting the money from the recycling, which is really interesting, especially when it comes to the municipal, the municipal government. So when we put our uh, cans and things into the recycling bin, you would think that the government or somebody gets money from that. But really, it's private entities who are getting the money from any of the recycling that's happening. That's what keeps me up at night, that we're not going to be able to quieten enough of those other voices to really hear the, the real problems and the real issues around the sustainability of plastics to really be able to make true change. Speaking of the government and businesses, though, what role do you think the government, businesses and everyday consumers have in tackling and solving this plastics problem? That's a great question. When it comes to the circular economy, uh, where everybody, every stakeholder is in this big loop and products are passed from place to place and hopefully all of that value is maintained within that closed loop, we all have an equal and important role to get the products from one place to the, to the next around that cycle. People say that we can vote with our dollar or vote with our vote and that's really kind of the way that our world is at the moment. So really it's just asking the producers, asking our governments, asking anybody who's listening to make these changes, to do those things. And that's kind of the tricky part at the moment. When it comes to businesses and people making the materials, it's up to them to really think about what's happening to them afterwards. Like just because someone's bought your, your bottle or bought your product doesn't mean that's the end of its life. And you as a, as a producer has responsibility to make sure that either the um, customer is informed as to how that material can be recycled and reused, or that there is some sort of take-back program or some mechanism in which that material can find its way into a new use as well. And from the government's uh, point of view, they're supposed to have the power to make all these larger decisions to create that ecosystem that we need. So if the goal is to create a closed loop for plastics, then the government needs to sit down and really think about what do we need to do to make that a reality. They often end up sitting in dark rooms and talking to different people, um, none of which are the community and the people who are most affected <laughs> by plastic. Allowing that all these different people to have their voices and to really think about, okay, what do we need? How are we going to make this local? How are we going to inspire and um, innovate in our local environment so we keep all of that value here rather than spreading it around? Making these tough decisions and really thinking critically about what is the future for plastics here in Canada. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you're saying. And I think it just proves that each of us have a role to play, no matter how big and how small, to be able to tackle this issue. Because not one person or not one country or not one company can do it alone. We all have to work together. 
That being said, though, a lot of our listeners are everyday consumers. And for consumers, I think a lot of us can start reducing the amount of plastics we use. Do you have any alternatives that you can suggest to us? So, for example, personally, I have really cut down on the amount of single use coffee cups I now purchase, and I try to use the reusable one whenever possible. Definitely. And I'm really glad you brought up reuse. I always forget reuse, I mean, sorry, reduce rather. <laughs> Because it's just, it's so obvious to me that we should be reducing at the same time as trying to figure out all these other things. But yeah, I mean, it's just thinking, looking around your house and taking it like and auditing all the plastic that you have. Like, do you really need a lot of this stuff? I guess the hardest stuff is when you have the cleaning supplies and your shampoo and you often just like go to the supermarket and you pick up another bottle. It just seems so natural just to grab another one, grab a new bottle because you've recycled the last one, right? But why don't we just, you can definitely find places, especially around Vancouver and BC, where you can take a glass bottle, for example, and get that refilled with your shampoo or your cleaning supplies. Trying to find ways to reduce that plastic waste. For me, I just carry around a reusable bag in my bags. Whenever I randomly go to the supermarket, I can just take out my bag and just use that instead of having to get a plastic one. You can even just take one plastic bag around with you um, and then once that plastic bag eventually breaks, which it will, you can grab another plastic bag because those are super lightweight. So instead of just using one once, you can use it a lot of times, which really does reduce the carbon footprint of um, your plastic bags too. Yep, love that. Bring reusable bags or plastic bags with you everywhere because you never know when you need one. So my second last question is, what other words of advice do you have for us? Well, I guess whenever we're talking about plastics and sustainability, it's really easy to get quite overwhelmed and a little bit depressed about the state of the world as we have it. My first words of advice would be just to not to be so hard on yourself. Like not everyone can reduce all of their plastic waste. Going towards zero waste is a great goal um, and every step along that pathway is really important. But just be real, like sometimes you forget your bag, sometimes you forget your coffee cup and just say, okay, I made this mistake, but I can try again the next time. Then other than that, it's just really just trying to get more people on board with this. Like everyone generally knows that there's a problem with plastics and, and our climate and all these different things, but just continue having these conversations, make it mainstream, make it just the topic that everyone goes to when they think about what they want for the future. And that way, people who go into political office or new people, new CEOs, they all know that the first priority for anything that they do is to make sure that we're being sustainable and that we're making sure that there is a future for our children and our children's children. Yeah, that is some great advice. My last question to you is if people want to connect with you or ask you some questions, how can they do that? Always on LinkedIn, uh, talking to people there is awesome. I just uh, finished my website, which is lovesychili.com. You'll find my blog and also a link to some of the research that I do as well. I will link her website as well as her LinkedIn in the show notes so you can look for it there as well. If you want to help us spread fashion sustainability and recruit more members to join our recloudative movement, Make sure you leave us a rating and review that really helps us. And take a screenshot of you listening to this episode and post it to your Instagram stories and tag us at Recloseted. That helps us spread the word and it's also really cool seeing you guys listen to our episode. I hope you have an amazing week and remember, we are all in this together and together we will write the harmful fashion industry.